Good afternoon. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I'd like to um, get started and thank the people watching remotely, if there are any. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Rubens Chang, our third graduating fellow Grand Rounds presentation this month. Dr. Chang came to us in 2014 to start his hematology oncology fellowship here. He came to us from residency at Michigan State uh, University in Grand Rapids. He received his MD from the University of Toledo in Ohio and his BA in chemistry at Ohio State. Before entering medical school, uh, Dr. Chang worked in several research labs, resulting in multiple publications related to epigenetic changes in pancreatic cancer at Johns Hopkins with Dr. Michael Goggins, then under Stanford, Stanford Peng at Roche on transcription factors in toll-like receptors in autoimmune disease, then with Dr. Thomas Montine at University of Washington on neuroinflammation and neurogenesis. He has also volunteered on several medical mission trips to Honduras and was trained as a hospice volunteer while living in Seattle. As a fellow, he has used his quiet and compassionate manner to study broadly in hematology oncology, and as such has gained expertise and appreciation for immunotherapy, which you'll hear more about shortly. And he recently published with Dr. Shirai a fascinating case report involving pembrolizumab. He has no financial interests or disclosures to report. He does not intend to discuss off-label products or devices. He's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Dr. Chang will be leaving us June 30th for a medical oncology position with the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Thank you for your attention, and please welcome Dr. Chang. Can you hear me well? Is it too loud? Okay. So thank you for the introduction. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, start my presentation. So the topic, as you see, is the use of immune checkpoint inhibitor in the clinic. Um, so I have no disclosures, as Dr. Chamberlain was saying, and I'm just going to be discussing uh, FDA-approved indications on some of the checkpoint inhibitors in the next hour. So what we're going to go over in the next hour is um, the current FDA-approved indications on the anti-PD-1 and pd one antibodies, and then we'll discuss the efficacies of these antibodies across different cancer types. And then at the end, we'll discuss the toxicity profiles of checkpoint inhibitors and how they are different from traditional chemotherapy. So I don't expect you to read this, but just to give you an idea, uh, since September 2014, there have been over 20 different FDA-approved indications on the use of this, any of these anti-PD-1 or PDL one antibodies. So for obvious reason, we're not going to talk about all of them. So what I'm going to go over in the next hour is I'm going to present a case each in melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, and classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I'll discuss some of the data behind the use of uh, anti-PD-1 or PDL one antibody behind those cases. And then I'll briefly uh, summarize uh, the use of anti-PD-1, PDL one antibody in the other disease group. So briefly, so as many of you probably know, that the way how this works is that so normally our T cells are able to recognize tumor cell, and um, 
the tumor cells are thought to be foreign to our T cell, and the T cell can destroy them. However, over time, the tumor cells are able to evade immune system, and one of the mechanisms that the, T cell do, uh, the tumor cells do are through the expression of PDL1. And as you see on the left side here, uh, when the tumor cell express PDL1 ligand, it binds to PD1 receptor on T cell, and that's an inhibitory signal and turns off the T cell and therefore the T cell cannot recognize tumor cells. So when we use one of the PD-1 or PD-L1 antibodies on the right here, when one of the antibody binds to whether the receptor or the ligand, it prevents the inhibitory signal from occurring, and therefore the T cell remain turned on and able to recognize and destroy cancer cells. So I'll move on to our case one. So this is a 64-year-old male with a history of diabetes on insulin, hypertension, end-stage renal disease on dialysis. In October of 2013, he presented with left ear lesion. White local excision confirmed a T4A and 2B stage 3B melanoma. So he underwent surveillance and did pretty well for over a year until March of 2015. PET scan showed an enlarged left neck lymph node. He had lymph node dissection and showed a 10 out of 42 positive lymph nodes. Pathology was positive for BRAF-V600K mutation. Because of his multiple comorbidities, he did not undergo any adjuvant therapy at the time. So he did well for about six months or so in October of 2015. He presented with abdominal pain and decreased appetite. A PET scan show on the right here, as you can see, multiple hypermetabolic lymph nodes, uh, lymph node in the neck, and then lymph node on the abdomen here in the retroperitoneal area. Biopsy on one of the lymph nodes confirmed metastatic melanoma. So at this juncture, so because of his pathology was positive for BRAF V600 mutation, so in theory he could either start with combination BRAF-MAC inhibitor or immune checkpoint inhibitor. But as you know, you know, he's on dialysis, and most of these patients are excluded from any clinical trials. So we really don't have any data on whether it's the renal dosing, how do we do that, or the efficacy of any of these drugs in this type of situation. But what we do know is immune checkpoint inhibitors such as you know, pembrolizumab or anti-PD-1 uh, antibodies, they are usually not dialyzable because of the large molecular weight. So after discussion of risk and benefit, and really he didn't have much better options, then he was starting on pembrolizumab, which was an anti-PD-1 antibody. After one cycle, he had improved symptoms. His abdominal pain was better. His appetite was better. After two cycles, his LDH dropped from 11.32 to 1.31, which was within normal limit. And after three cycles, there was resolution of his right lower low pulmonary nodule. And the cascade on the right, you see here the top the cascade before therapy. You can see retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy here. And down here is the cascade after three cycles of pembrolizumab, and most of the lymph nodes are gone. Fortunately, after seven cycles, his cascade showed complete response on the right here. So you don't see those retroperitoneal lymph nodes anymore, as well as the cervical lymph node. 
Unfortunately, after 10 cycles, he developed arthritis. So therapy was stopped. He was stopped on steroid. Uh, he underwent surveillance since then, and his arthritis in initially resolved but recurred again. So he never went back on therapy. So since then, he had two more PET scans, and both of them showed no evidence of disease. His last treatment was June of 2016, and that was almost a year ago, and he's still disease-free. So we're very happy for him. So let's talk about some key data behind using this uh, checkpoint inhibitor. So one of the, the key trials in bringing pembrolizumab to the upfront setting in metastatic melanoma was Kino006. This was a randomized phase three trial in patients who has never been treated in advanced stage scenario. Patients were randomized to one to one to one ratio to pembrolizumab at 10 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks or the same dose at every three-week schedule, or ipilimumab. Uh, as you see here, the objective response rate was almost three times higher for both the pembrolizumab group at about 32 to 33% versus 11.9% for ipilimumab. When you look at progression-free survival on the left here, the pembrolizumab group also did better compared to ipilimumab the six-month progression-free survival for pembrolizumab was 46 to 47% versus 26%. That's a 20% difference. When you look at the median progression-free survival and also the overall survival on the right here, it will also, the pembrolizumab group were also better than ipilimumab. In terms of toxicity, as you see here, grade three and grade four toxicities were a lot higher for the ipilimumab group almost 20% versus 10% if you use the every three-week schedule and 13% for the every two-week schedule. <laughs> so the updated data on Kino006 was presented in ASCO last year, and as you see, the two-year survival continued to show that pembrolizumab was better than ipilimumab. The two-year overall survival was 55% for both groups, regardless of the schedule, versus 43% in ipilimumab. So that tells us that median overall survival in this disease population is over two years. And just a point of reference, when we use chemotherapy, the overall survival is 6 to 12 months. What was also interesting was the overall response rate seemed to continue to rise over time from each entering analysis to final analysis, as you see here in the bar graph. And looks like looking at the contribution to the overall response rate are mostly from patient with complete response over time. That group continued to rise in each of these groups, and that's even true in ipilimumab. So I think that's encouraging in a way that you know, this in this patient population, even if they don't derive complete response at the beginning, you can still see completed response down the road, and and that's one of the difference between uh, using immune checkpoint inhibitor versus traditional chemotherapy. So we'll talk about uh, this trial involving nivolumab in the frontline setting. So. This is a randomized three trial on, on treated patients with advanced disease. Patients were randomized to one-to-one -to -one ratio to either nivolumab monotherapy or nivolumab plus ipilimumab followed by nivolumab or ipilimumab alone. And as you see here, in objective response rate was highest in the combination group in the middle of over 57% 
followed by nivolumab, 43%, and then ipilimumab, the lowest at 19%. When you look at the progression-free survival in the overall population on the top here, the combination groups seem to do better, as we expected, 11.5 months for progression-free survival versus 6.9 months, and then about three months for ipilimumab. But when you break down you know, the patient population, the patient who had a PD-L1 expression of 5% or greater, the progression-free survival seemed to be no different between the combination group and the nivolumab monotherapy group, both with progression-free survival of 14 months. And so essentially, if you look at the bottom of the slide here, the patient who derived benefit from adding ipilimumab to nivolumab are the patient with so-called, uh, they define as pd one negative population, which are pd one less than 5%. So in terms of toxicity, as we expected, so the combination NEVO-EP group has the highest toxicity of over 68%, grade 3 and grade 4 toxicity, followed by ipilimumab, second, over 55%, grade 3, 4 toxicity, and then nivolumab, the lowest. So briefly, a few key trials for melanoma in the metastatic setting. So I show you the data for keynote 006 using pembrolizumab in the frontline setting. Keynote 002 used pembrolizumab in the second line setting after progression on ipilimumab or BRAP inhibitor. And as you see here, when we used that in the second line setting, the objective response rate was lower, 21% versus 36%, and the overall survival and the other numbers are in overall you know, not as good as when we use in the first night setting. The, the other trials that I didn't show you was for nivolumab was checkmate 066. Uh, you saw the data just uh, earlier from 067. In 066, you compare um, first night setting using nivolumab versus chemotherapy. And as you see, the objective response rate was a lot higher for nivolumab at 40% versus 14%. And one year overall survival was 73% for nivolumab versus 42% for chemotherapy. And these two trials essentially what brought nivolumab to the frontline setting for metastatic melanoma. And I circle the, the duration of response here just to give you an idea so most of them are not reached. So if we look at the median duration of response for chemotherapy is about four to six months. So that is very different there. So in summary for metastatic melanoma, so in the first night setting, you can use either pembrolizumab or nivolumab as monotherapy. Or if patient has really high burden disease, you can use combination ipilimumab plus nivolumab. In patients with BRAV600 mutation, of course, you can use BRAV main inhibitor combination. In the second line setting, then you can use nivolumab or pembrolizumab or ipinimo combo if they progress on, on BRAV or MAC inhibitor. Or you can use ipilimumab in the second line setting. So with the data I just showed you, there's really no reason for us to use ipilimumab in the frontline setting alone anymore with more toxicity and lower efficacy. So we'll move on to non-small cell lung cancer. So this is a 57-year-old woman with 25-pack year smoking history, quit 14 years ago. She initially presented with cough and fatigue to her PCP's office, and she was treated with antibiotics without improvement. 
Her PCP uh, or the CAT scan show a CT, show a uh, six centimeter left upper uh, lobe non mass with possible aortic arch involvement. She had no distant metastasis. Her biopsy showed adenocarcinoma, and pathology was negative for EGFR mutation and ALK rearrangement. Her PDL1 expression was less than 1%. So, because of the location of her tumor, she was studying on neoadjuvant chemotherapy with cisplatin and pemetrexate. <coughs> she completed four cycles with good response, uh, and then she underwent lobectomy with lymph node resection. Unfortunately, six weeks later, uh, her restaging CT now showed new liver lesions along with scapular lesion and AP window lymphadenopathy. So by this time, she had metastatic disease within several months of chemotherapy, so she was studying on second-line therapy with atezolizumab, which is an anti-PD-L1 antibody. Interestingly, her pathology at this time from the lobectomy showed a PD-L1 expression of 55%. And if you remember from last time, her PD-L1 expression was less than 1% pre-chemotherapy. So she underwent a tazolizumab for four cycles, and the CT on the left is the CT before tazolizumab. CT on the right is after four cycles, and you see one of her liver nodules here went from almost 17 millimeter down to 10 millimeter. And there was also near complete resolution of her AP window lymphadenopathy. She's still on treatment. So atezolizumab is currently approved for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer in the second night setting after platinum-containing therapy. The approval was based on the ARC trial. This was a randomized phase three trial on patients who progressed on chemotherapy. And patients were randomized to atezolizumab at 1,200 milligram every three weeks, or docetax of 75 milligram per meter square every three weeks, which is a very typical chemotherapy that we use in the second night setting in this setting. So looks like a busy table. I'll divide this down for you. Basically, the top of the table, the top half are the overall population. The bottom half are the patient with PDO1 expression of 1% or higher. So if you just look at the progression-free survival in orange and the objective response in yellow here, there's really no difference between the two groups. And if anything, the progression-free survival was worse for a tezolizumab at 2.8 months versus the docetax of four months. But if you look at the duration of response for the atezolizumab, that was 16 months versus docetax of six months. That's a difference of 10 months. So that kind of tells us that is progression-free survival a good endpoint measure in this setting? You know, patients who get response from this kind of therapy tend to have durable response. And this essentially is probably what translates into the overall survival advantages you see here. So on the top are the overall population, and you can see the survival advantage for tezolizumab was 14% at 12 months and 13% at 18 months. Now, when they divided the patient into different subgroups based on PDO1 expression, those with PDO1 more than 1% or 5%, it really didn't matter. You still see that survival advantage. It was not a surprise that a patient with the highest PDO1 expression of 50% or greater derived the most advantage compared to the other populations. What was interesting was also the other population I highlighted in yellow here. These are the Negative, uh, the patient that defines PDL1 negative. Those are the patients with PDL1 expression of less than 1%. And 
and they still have more than 10% survival advantage compared to traditional docetaxel therapy. So the summary is that, so the main point is the overall survival favored atazolizumab really regardless of PD-L1 expression from this study. So perhaps one of the uh, practice-changing article or trial from last year was Keno 24 This trial compared pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy in the first-line setting for patients with PD-L1 expression of 50% or greater. So this is noticed that the patient population here are the patients without actionable EGFR or ALK mutations. Patients were randomized to pembrolizumab or chemotherapy. And as you see in the progression-free survival curve here, patients on the pembrolizumab group had a 10.3-month progression-free survival, a four-month advantage over chemotherapy. The median overall survival was not rich or not mature at the time, but the hazard ratio was 0.6, and you can see the early separation of two curves from the beginning. So it'll be interesting to see what the updated data in the near future on this. The overall response rate was also higher for patients on pembrolizumab, 45% versus 28% in chemotherapy group. The duration response was not rich for pembrolizumab versus six months for chemotherapy. So just to summarize a few key uh, trials for non, in non-small cell non-cancer. So nivolumab is used in a second-line setting. These three trials use nivolumab after patient progress on platinum-based therapy compared to those etaxel. Checkmate 063 is a patient with squamous cell carcinoma, heavily pretreated. 017 are also squamous cell carcinoma, not as heavily pretreated, and you can see the difference in their numbers here. 057 are the patients in non-squamous carcinoma. And overall response rates ranging from 15 to 20% with one-year overall survival of about 40 to 50% in this case. For atezolizumab, the popular study was the phase two trial of OCK study, and the numbers are fairly similar as you see here. Okay. Pembrolizumab is a little different. I show you the data for 024, so that's when we use pembrolizumab in the first nine setting in patients with PDO1 expression of 50% or greater. Objective response rate was 45%. Overall, risk, overall survival at six months was 80%, with progression-free survival over 10 months. Kino 010 used pembrolizumab in the second nine setting after chemotherapy, and you can see the numbers are very fairly similar to the other two drugs in the second night setting here. Keynote 021 is the other trial that's potentially practice-changing for us. Um, so that trial used um, pembrolizumab in the first night setting in combination with chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. And the combination group with pembrolizumab has a higher overall response rate of 55% versus 29%. Overall survival at six months was not different. Uh, progression-free survival was four months better for the pembrolizumab combination. So we'll have to see what the long-term data show us in this trial in terms of overall survival advantage. So as of right now, the FDA uh, indication on these drugs are in the second-line setting, you can use nivolumab or atezolizumab after chemotherapy. For pembrolizumab, as we talk about in the first-line setting, you can use um, 
pembrolizumab if patient has more than 50% PD-L1 expression without a driver mutation, or you can use that in combination with carboplatin, pembrolizumab in non-squamous population, or you can use that in the second line setting if PD-L1 expression is 1% or higher. So, as you know, non-small cell is not like the past anymore. It's not just platinum doublet. Now we have targeted therapy or immunotherapy, chemotherapy. So where do we start? So as for today, at least for today, you know how things can change next month. Uh, it's pretty quickly in our field. So as for today, a stage four non-small cell non-cancer patient, I will get PD-L1 expression as well as molecular testing in all the non-squamous population and then in selected squamous cell population as well. If they have any driver mutations, such as EGFR mutation or ALK rearrangement, then use one of the targeted therapies, such as EGFR inhibitor or ALK inhibitor. If not, then look what their PD-L1 expression level is. If it's more than 50%, then use pembrolizumab uh, as first line, as I show you from the data in 024. Now, if they don't have any of those, then we go back to look at their histology whether they are non-squam or squam. If it's non-squam, now we have the option of adding pembrolizumab to carboplatin and pemetrexate or just chemotherapy alone. If they are squam, then use platinum doublet. So moving on to classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. So the patient is a 66-year-old woman with hysterosarcoidosis. She initially presented in April 2014 with a choking sensation. A CT was done at the time, found mediastinal mass, and a PET scan showed FDG avid lymphadenopathy on both sides of the diaphragm. A biopsy was done and confirmed Hodge, classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. So she underwent um, standard of care with ABVD for six cycles. A PET scan afterwards showed FDG avid lymphadenopathy in the mediastinum. So she underwent biopsy again, and at that time, it showed sarcoidosis. So she did well for over a year until early 2016. She presented with neck swelling. And because of the history of sarcoidosis, she had a trial prednisone with no improvement. In May of 2016, she presented with SVC syndrome, and CT was done again, showed extensive neck lymphadenopathy extending into the mediastinum. Biopsy was done and confirmed recurrent classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. She was studied on brentuximab with Dalton, but because of inadequate response and progressive disease within two weeks, she was switched to chemotherapy. So at this time, what you hope for is the patient can get their salvage therapy and obtain a complete response, and you, the best case scenario, you take them to transplant in first relapse. Unfortunately, after two cycles, Pascan showed residual disease in left cervical, axillary, and mediastinum. So she went on to have another cycle of chemotherapy, and by this time she had decreased performance status. She had pancytopenia, required weekly transfusion, and also she had increased lymph node on her neck on physical exam and increased ESR. So you can see she was really not in a good position or good spot to get autologous stem cell transplant. So she was starting on nivolumab. So PET scan was done after five cycles, showed improvement of her previous lymphadenopathy. However, there were new lymph nodes on both sides of the diaphragm now. 
So what didn't make sense was clinically she felt well, she had no B symptoms, and she also had improved performance status, and she also has no side effect, and her ESR decreased for the first time. So she had biopsy done again, and this time again showed sarcoidosis. So she was continuing on evolumab, and until February, she got another PET scan, and she, now she'll complete response in the cervical lymph node and decrease size in the outer lymph node. Her ESR as of April or last month was still within normal range. So nivolumab was approved by the FDA based on this phase two trial. So this was a um, single arm trial in patient with recurrent classical Hodgkin's lymphoma who failed autologous transplant and brentuximab edotin. Patients received nivolumab three milligrams per kilogram every two weeks. The objective response here is over 66% from independent radiologic review committee. And the six-month progression-free survival was 77%. Six-month overall survival was over 98%. Okay, so I just want to highlight this overall response rate here of 66%. So this is uh, the best number I've shown you so far of all the trials earlier. This is even better than using the volumen for melanoma in the first night setting alone. And you may think this is Hodgkin's lymphoma, but this is a, if we know about Hodgkin's, if we don't cure them the first time, it's really hard to cure them. And in a, pay, in a population that progress after autologous transplant and there really isn't a lot of good options. So pembrolizumab also had a similar trial. It's also a phase two trial. Show a very similar number here, 69% objective response rate and overall 90, over 99% six-month um, overall survival. The difference between the two trials are the patient population. In the nivolumab, all the patients had to fail autologous transplant as well as bentoximab redotin. In the pembrolizumab trial, patients included here were also patients who were ineligible for autologous transplant and patients with primary refractory disease. So that's why the label is different. For pembrolizumab, they just have to have refractory or relapse disease after three or more prior therapy. So just briefly on renal cell carcinoma. So currently only one immune checkpoint inhibitor is approved in this setting. So it was nivolumab versus everolimus based on a phase three study uh, on patient with renal cell carcinoma after progression on anti-angiogenic therapy. So you see here, overall response rate was 25% for nivolumab versus 5% everolimus, a 20% difference. Overall survival was better for nivolumab by five, about five months over everolimus. So a few slides on head and neck cancer. Currently, only FDA approved um, checkpoint inhibitors, inhibitors on nivolumab and pembrolizumab. So nivolumab was approved based on checkpoint 141. It's a randomized phase three study uh, looking at nivolumab versus standard chemotherapy after progression on platinum-based therapy. One-year survival was 36% for nivolumab versus 16% for chemotherapy, a 20% difference. Medium over survival was better for nivolumab group by about two and a half months. Progression-free survival doesn't seem to be different between the two groups, but there appear to be a late separation curves. So we have to wait for long-term data to sh show us what this is. So, so currently, 
Nivolumab is approved based on randomized phase three trial. Pembrolizumab is approved as well, but only based on a phase one B and Q data. The response rates are very similar, as well as uh, all the parameters. So just briefly on bladder cancer, if you were here last week, uh, my colleague, Dr. Bach, gave an excellent and very detailed presentation on this. So I'm just going over a few things here. So currently, in the second night setting, after platinum-based therapy, there are five checkpoint inhibitors approved by the FDA, and notice three of them were just this month. So atezolizumab was the first one, was anti-PD-01 antibody, nivolumab is anti-PD-1. Devalumab and rivalumab are anti-PD-01 antibody and pembrolizumab is the PD-1 antibody. So I just want to point out, except for pembrolizumab, the other four drugs are based on phase two study, so we need to wait for their long-term data on their phase three trial um, as well to see what I show us. So pembrolizumab is the phase three study show us objective response rate of 21% with overall survival over 10 months. So it is good news in a way for those of us treat bladder cancer. As you know, these patients are usually present at older age, in the 70s. So the likelihood of them tolerate platinum or cisplatinum-based therapy is lower and is more toxic. So currently, there are two drugs approved for patients who are not eligible for cisplatinum in the frontline setting, and that's atezolizumab and pembrolizumab. And the overall response rate are higher compared to using them in the second night setting. So a few slides on Merkel cell carcinoma. Currently only one drug is approved, and that's Avalumab. And Merkel cell carcinoma is a rare aggressive skin cancer that affects older adults with light skin colors. Uh, median age of diagnosis is about 75 years of age, about 5 to 50. Uh, 12% of patients present with metastatic disease. And the five-year overall survival ranges from 0 to 18%. Response to chemotherapy are not usually durable. So this is a phase two trial that, ran, that assigned 88 patients, uh, and they were treated with Avalumab, 10 milligram per kilogram every two weeks. The objective response rate was 32% with 9% complete response and 23% partial response. What they also show from the study was the duration response was durable with 82% of patients with ongoing response at the time of the, di the analysis. The median duration of response was not reached and the response was observed regardless of uh, PDL1 expression. And as you see here, uh, on the swimmers plus point out that so the orange triangle are the patient with partial response so most of them derive a partial response from the beginning and some of them went on from partial response to complete response which is the purple triangle and we also see this in melanoma as well the data I didn't show you so so again that shows us patient can go from partial response to complete response over time with this type of therapy so finally, so just last week, there's a new FDA indication for pembrolizumab, and that's for patients uh, with MSI high and, or mismatch repair deficient solid tumor who progress on their previous therapy and who have no good alternatives. So the approval was based on five, from 149 patients from five different trials. 
of different solid tumors. The objective response rate was close to 40%, and that's similar when we saw earlier using uh, nivolumab in melanoma in the frontline setting. Uh, again, the duration of response was not rich, but response was durable. And most of the patients had colorectal cancer, as you see here, and some other uh, patients had endometrial and other GI malignancy. So I think this is uh, important for us in terms of, you know, some of these cancers are difficult to treat cancers and open up another option for them. And I highlight pancreatic cancer here, even though there's only six patients, but has a pretty high objective response rate in five out of six patients. So, and finally, we'll talk a little bit about toxicity. So, it is true that uh, chemotherapy in general give higher um, overall toxicity as well as grade three to five uh, toxicity compared to immunotherapy or checkpoint inhibitors. And as you see here, the red are the patient uh, getting docetaxel from the ALK trial, and the blue is atezolizumab. And, um, and again, this is an example from another trial comparing nivolumab and docetaxel in non-small cell lung cancer. Grade 3, 4 toxicity was a lot higher at 55% for docetaxel versus 7% in the nivolumab group and as well as any grade toxicity was 86% for docetaxel versus 58% for nimolumab. And another example here from checkpoint 141 in head and neck cancer. So again, grade 3, 4 toxicity was higher in standard chemotherapy of 35% versus 13%. So while that's true, so it's important to recognize that the toxicity profiles are very different uh, in chemotherapy comparing to immune checkpoint inhibitor. Essentially, so-called eaters, any kinds of inflammatory response that any organ can essentially get, as you see here in the figure, anything from dermatitis, arthritis, colitis, to more serious pneumonitis, myocarditis, encephalitis. So fatal cases have been reported, such as myocarditis, pneumonitis, and encephalitis. So it's important uh, for us as oncologists to recognize the difference in their side effect profiles, and they can be serious and at times fatal. So it's important to stop the treatment for toxicity and start steroid. Okay? So patients may come to you and may be nervous about getting steroid. They may say that is the steroid going to reduce the efficacy of me getting this checkpoint inhibitor? And that's not really true, and this was um, a study uh, presented in last year's ASCO, uh, essentially in patients on one of the melanoma study who on ipilimumab and nivolumab combination who came off the drug because of the toxicities. The top is the overall response curve, and the bottom is the progression-free survival. Sorry, the top is the overall survival curve. So the brown color here are the patients who discontinue uh, checkpoint inhibitors because of their toxicity. The orange color are the patients continue epinevol. And if anything, you see here, people who discontinue the therapy seem to do better and not worse in terms of overall survival. And for progression-free survival, they didn't really do worse. 
So in summary, so we're excited about checkpoint inhibitors that certainly offer a lot of new options in variety of cancer type nowadays. Now we have uh, long-term data for melanoma and some cases in non-small cell lung cancer. So we're to wait for long-term data for this other disease type to tell us if the efficacy lasts and continues. It's important to recognize that the pattern of responses are different in uh, checkpoint inhibitors compared to traditional chemotherapy in ways that response can be durable if patients benefit from it, and they can go from partial response to over-response to complete response over time. It's also important to recognize that the toxicity profiles are different than chemotherapy, and they can be serious and fatal. Um, so currently, these are not, as you know, these are not the only checkpoint inhibitors. There are other checkpoint inhibitors uh, in hundreds of ongoing clinical trials uh, right now. So we'll watch for more new drugs in the near future. And with that, I would like to thank Dr. Shai and Dr. Benson for those cases and my learning from those patients, and Dr. Chamberlain and the Hemong section for the fellowship training. These are my reference, and thank you for listening. Take any questions. Yeah, good question. So yes and no. So for melanoma, we don't. So the current approval, the indications that you don't have to check it, and as you see, the data are not very consistent in terms of how valuable they are. So, and for um, head and neck cancer, we also don't do that in the second line setting. We don't do that for renal cell as well. Um, yes. Your lung cancer case histologically went from low PDL1 expression to substantial PDL1. Right. What do you think is happening there biologically? No, that's a good question. I was pondering on that too, and I'm not really sure. And I've seen reports in uh, bladder cancer that patients video one expression change after neoadjuvant or chemotherapy. So not quite sure why that is. I wonder, you know, some of the, the chemotherapy we give are they also immunomodulatory, just like what we do in transplant too. You know, when we use cytoxin in a different way. And so yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it'll be interesting to see in the future if more of those cases come out, and, and what does that really mean? Yeah. Yes. Can we routinely check for microsatellite instability um, in the clinic with our patients? Uh, not right now. I don't believe so. Uh, I know we do that for colorectal cancer. That's a standard of care. Um, but the approval I show you was just from last week. So I think that's something we had to work on with our pathologist. Yeah. So. I can say that's an issue that. Um, yeah, we, we need to talk about colleagues about because it's called uh, cholangiocarcinomas and GFF, gastric and esophageal cancers. We know that there's a real incidence of, of uh, this, but um, there's no, there's really no good data on how common the, that alteration is and right. there's no standard practice currently of checking. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
Sure. Well, it seems like in the Hodgkin's case and, and several of the other, I think it was the lung, but they recur really quickly after primary therapy, which is traditionally a poor prognostic indicator. Correct. So do you see immunotherapy moving up in the line, and how are you counseling patients in terms of um, how what used to be thought of as poor prognosis may not be anymore, and how do you communicate all that? Yeah, that's a good question. So. We have trials, I think, um, looking at uh, first-line setting, you know, in those disease categories. And there's also a combination of nivolumab or pembrolizumab with chemotherapy in Hodgkin's disease, too. Um, in terms of how to counsel patients, and I think it's, it's, I think we have a lot more to offer right now, and it's encouraging, and we can tell patients that, you know, in a, um, in addition to you know chemotherapy, we have all these other options, and because we don't have long-term data to tell us that you know how are they, what's the durability, for example, so we have to wait for more data in the coming years, and hopefully they will show us you know if those response to those treatments or the immune checkpoint inhibitors really reflect. Um, what we have seen so far, and patients may have continued durability in their response, and if that's the case, that may really kind of negate the poor prognostic feature of those scenarios. Yeah. So we do have several trials um, getting an NIV on first, followed by chemo, or chemo first, and then followed by um, NIV1, or at least in that same, give all three of them together, but we don't know what will be the best sequence for blood patient. Yeah. The exciting thing is this PDA1 expression, more than 50%, has been seen about one third of lung cancer patients, so which is much higher than 10 to 15% people who have EGFR mutation or 2 to 5% with ALK translocation. So clearly, there's a really high yield to test this PDA1 expression in lung cancer. Melanoma, we don't know, although it's probably. Um, Tempted to test it because if PDL1 expression is positive, you may not need EP nevo combination, which has much higher risk with potential fatal side effects, but it's not been implemented yet. But I'm always tempted should I check it, insurance will cover or not. But I have not done it. <laughs> have there been any issues with reimbursements from you know, the, the high cost of these therapies? Um, so far, not. Although clearly, this carbopenetrexate pembrolizumab, with you know the trial used pembrolizumab and then pembrolizumab maintenance up to two years. So pem pem maintenance, the cost of drug itself costs one year at three hundred k, and then you see median progression free survival is thirteen months. So which means more than fifty percent of patients can get you know, one year of treatment unless they have side effect. So I, I don't know how society insurance premium may go up again. Um, so it's exciting, but it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you.